Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today's Talking Politics guide is with Helen Thompson and she's going to be talking about the euro, where the idea came from, how they thought it would work and whether it really does. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. Let's begin at the beginning. Whose idea was the euro? Where does the idea come from? It was really the the French government sometime probably in late 1987, though, I mean, it's possible, I guess, that they'd been thinking about it um, before. You'd hope they'd been thinking about it before before. then. At that time in in France, the president was uh, Francois Mitterrand from the Socialist Party. It was what's called a period of cohabitation, so that the prime minister was the centre-right Gaullist, uh, Jacques Chirac. The finance minister was Edward Balladur and... Between them, though I would suspect that Mitron was less involved in any of the detail of it, they put forward the idea to a Council of Finance Ministers of the European Community, as it then was in early 1987, that what was needed, the European Community needed, was a single currency. And the reason why that they wanted it was because the French had become extremely dissatisfied with the way in which the exchange rate mechanism was working. The exchange rate mechanism had produced the big crisis of the Mitterrand presidency in March 1983, where effectively Mitterrand had had to decide whether France was going to continue with its membership of the exchange rate mechanism and ultimately of the European community itself. And what Mitterrand decided was, yes, France was, but that that meant that the French had to buckle under the rules of the exchange rate mechanism, which they had been sort of tacitly disregarding until that point. So the French had been running an exchange rate policy, and indeed the whole of macroeconomic policy had been subordinated to that exchange rate policy called the Frankfurt, the strong franc. And Mitterrand and his ministers hoped that they would get certain rewards from that, not least basically the kinds of economic benefits that Germany got, or West Germany as it then was, which meant higher growth for a lower rate of inflation, essentially with lower interest rates. And the French didn't get that. This is true actually in 1986, but certainly by 1987, the French have got their inflation rate down, but they still have slower growth than West Germany, and crucially that they have a significantly higher level of unemployment. So the French idea was that the Germans, or West Germans, are the problem with the exchange rate mechanism because it's set up and dominated by the Bundesbank, which was the West German central bank, and that we need to Europeanise monetary policy within the European community, and they saw monetary union as a way to do that. And presumably they also had higher borrowing rates as well. I they mean, did, there yes. was a, what we would now call a spread. There was, was a, a big spread, spread yeah. and that was a big part of it, to be able to borrow at German rates. They wanted to borrow at German rates, and they, they saw it that the Germans were preoccupied with price stability, which they had been willing to accept when they, they concluded that if you followed the German route, that the German benefits came from it. But when the French followed the German route from March 83 and the German benefits didn't come with it, then they said, look, the problem is it's actually the whole setup just structurally advantages Germany to the disadvantage of everybody else. There is a conventional narrative that the way this thing then gets off the ground is it becomes a trade-off 
between France and Germany where the price of German unification or reunification is to accept a single currency. But that doesn't fit this sequence because it can't be that the French thought of this as a bargaining chip for German reunification because in 1987, no one thought that that was on the horizon. So what did initially, how did the French think they were going to sell it to the Germans? That is a very interesting question because the whole thing has an essentially anti-German drive to it. And so I think that what the way that the French approach things is not to face the contradiction of what that they're trying to do. So they persuade the rest of the European community, including the West German government, to set up a committee to look into the means necessary to achieve monetary union. And that is chaired by Jacques Delors, who'd been the French finance minister during Mitterrand's crisis in March 1983, and by that point was president of the European Commission. Delors understood that if monetary union was going to come about, then it was going to have to be on German terms. So that meant that there was going to be an independent central bank that was going to be like the Bundesbank. It was still going to have to be committed to price stability. Now, one way of looking at that is simply to say you could at least think that the Germans would accept it. From the French point of view, the Germans would accept it because there wasn't going to be anything that was radically different in terms of the kind of monetary policy that would be pursued. But there was still sufficient French advantage to it because you would take away the possibility of currency speculation between the franc and the Deutschmark and that the French would get lower rates of interest rate. So you could construct an economic trade-off in the original conception that Delors pushed through that committee, what became the Delors report. And the, the crucial thing on the timing, which just kind of blows apart the whole it was an exchange for German reunification, is, is that the European community heads of government had agreed to go ahead and set up an intergovernmental conference to do what was necessary treaty-wise in order to bring about monetary union in June 1989, so several months before the Berlin Wall came down. I don't want to jump ahead too far, but broadly speaking, for much of the period that the euro has been in existence, it's been good for Germany. I mean, Germany has, in some respects, benefited from it. But when you go back to the origin story... So you could say, well, the Germans might accept it because it wouldn't be that different, but they would be giving up the Deutschmark, which was for West Germany, actually the symbol of West German success. So if it's not reunification, they must have wanted something which is more than just, well, it's not going to be too terrible. It will benefit us. So what was the core benefit? Well, I, I Did think they anticipate the way it might go? If you look at it from, from Germany's point of view in the late 1980s, then there is an economic advantage to be had from moving from the ERM to monetary union. And that is that it takes away the ability of other states within the European community to engage in what the Germans thought of as essentially competitive devaluations against the Deutschmark. So although after March 1983, you get fewer devaluations of other currencies against the Deutschmark, they're not eliminated entirely, indeed quite the contrary. So if you're looking at this from a German economic perspective and you're concerned about the competitiveness of German export industry in relation to other European community economies, you can see a clear advantage in saying, well, it isn't the case that other states can basically try to compensate for their poor inflation performance by depreciating their currency. I think if you look at it from the point of view of of Helmut Kohl, who was the West German Chancellor at the time, I'm not saying he wasn't unconcerned about economic questions, but he wasn't interested in the detail of, of economic questions. And I think he wanted to see it as an exchange, and this was prior to German reunification, in which 
there would be shifts on the institutional questions within the European community. Sometimes it was called political union, but that, that's far too grandiose a term for what was put in place. So once you get the intergovernmental conference that's agreed on monetary union, then you also get, which in the end run parallel with it, an intergovernmental conference on these institutional questions, and they come together to produce the, the Maastricht Treaty, which is about much more than monetary union. So you can look at it and say that if you were coal and you wanted institutional reform within the European community, then there was a trade-off to be done with France. And if you were looking at it from a German economic point of view, from a finance minister's point of view, there were some economic benefits to be gained by Germany so long as the terms of monetary union were German. The Maastricht Treaty had a difficult passage to get ratified. There were opt-outs for the UK, on, including on this question. It was touch and go in France. It was very politically challenging, and yet there is this remarkable fact about it. I mean, it always seems to me amazing that here's this treaty that says in 1991 that by 1999 we'll have a single currency, and by God, by 1999 they did. Am I wrong to be amazed that you can will it and it will happen? I mean, it's one's used to international treaties saying that things are going to happen, and then they don't. Well, I think that um, there are a number of moments between December 1991 and the Maastricht summit and the beginning of monetary union in 1999 where it might well not have happened. And it wasn't just because the ratification was was difficult. Indeed, I would say that one of the crucial moments in the whole thing in terms of getting us to monetary union in 1999 is what happened in terms of ratification in Germany because ultimately that ended up at the German constitutional court and that crucial decision that the German Constitutional Court made that is still playing out in its consequences, which effectively says is that European integration has to be compatible with German basic law, i.e. with the German Constitution, comes from that moment. So that, in that sense, Germany's ratification of the Maastricht Treaty was conditional. It was inserting this clause effectively, not into European law itself, but it has since been acknowledged as something that has to be accepted. And just explain what the substantive issue was there that what's the thing that needs to be protected by German basic law that might otherwise be lost if this wasn't in place? Well I think that that's an interesting question because if you look at the single currency issue itself it's not so clear what is being protected. I think it's as much about the symbolism of it as anything else in the sense that by the time that the ratification of the Maastricht Treaty has to take place is we are talking about a reunified Germany and we're not talking about West Germany and so even though the substance of the agreement was in place before the Berlin Wall came down, it's a different kind of decision for a reunified Germany than it would have been for uh, than it was in 1988-1989. And it's also clear that there's plenty of discontent in Germany about proceeding with monetary union. And indeed, the court decision doesn't bring an end to that discontent. So there's a German general election in 1994 and for a while, it looks like the Christian Democrats were going to lose that election. And the Social Democratic Party in Germany fought that election, not on outright opposition to monetary union, but with a lot of doubt and scepticism about monetary union and pretty much outright opposition to certain southern European countries, not least Italy, being party to it. And really, monetary unions is changed by the rhetoric that Cole uses to try to defend his position and the Christian Democrats' position during that election campaign because he basically starts talking about monetary union as a symbol of European peace 
which has never been discussed in these terms before. It's been a macroeconomic question that the French sought to deal with in a in a certain way. And now it becomes a, a symbol of, supposedly anyway, a symbol of European unity. And he does that at the moment in which the opposition party, which for a while looks like it's going to win the election, is actually saying, we don't want to talk about European unity here because we're worried about having the Italians in particular in this free monetary office. free riding office, essentially, or in this monetary union, we don't want them. And even the fact that the Christian Democrats do win that election and that the court decision is in place isn't the end of the matter because then the Germans and Kohl realises that there's still sufficient discontent in Germany that more safeguards of the German position have to be put in place. So then he starts pushing, or his finance minister starts pushing the, the Stability and Growth Pact because monetary union had been established under the Maastricht Treaty without any fiscal rules for when monetary union began. It had fiscal rules for qualifying for monetary union, but it didn't have it for when monetary union began. Then the German government had to embark upon the project of trying to persuade others to accept a, a new treaty, and the French were extremely reluctant to do that. And to all intents and purposes, what happens in the end in 1997 is, is that a tacit deal is struck in which the French accept the Stability and Growth Pact and the Germans accept that the Italians are going to be in the single currency. And how much of this fight at that point was already about the European Central Bank? So the big thing, Germany doesn't just have to give up the Deutschmark, it has to give up the Bundesbank. And that's a deep anxiety. The Bundesbank is not quite the linchpin of the constitutional order, but it's something close. How did that play out? Was there a political contest over influence over the ECB? There was. I mean, I think you have to go back to the the beginning, really, to see the way that the Bundesbank story played out. Because when the Delors Committee was set up, it was set up such that the representatives of each member state were the president or the chair of the central bank. So the German representative was Karl Otto Pohl. Mrs Thatcher, as it happened, put great hope in Karl Otto Pohl. She trusted him as it turned out wrongly, much more than the representative of the Robin Lee Pemberton, who was the governor of the Bank of England at the time. She thought it would go nowhere because Carlotta Pearl would never agree to having the, the Bundesbank replaced by a European central bank. But he was very ineffective in that committee. So a lot of the discontent in Germany came from the fact that the Bundesbank had kind of been bypassed. But, and this goes back to the question that you asked a few minutes ago, the Bundesbank in some sense got its revenge, which was after the Maastricht summit had finished, the Bundesbank put up interest rates. At a time when Germany was dealing with the rising costs of and inflationary consequences of German reunification, and nobody else was dealing with the shock that the German reunification represented to their economies. And that produced the exchange rate mechanism crisis, first in September 1992, when Britain permanently and Italy temporarily ended up leaving the system. And then the whole system had to be suspended in the summer of 1993. Now, at that point, it's very difficult to see how you're going to get from having the ERM suspended, or in any meaningful sense suspended um, anyway, to monetary union beginning in 1999, let alone 1997, which was the, the first state. So in that sense, you could say there's the Bundesbank acted in ways that effectively tried to stop it, at least in its consequences, if not in intent. And I think it is important that really it's the 
the general improvement in international economic conditions in the from the middle of the 1990s that allows the monetary union project to be put back together again under conditions in which there's significantly less exchange rate instability the exchange rate instability will manifest again in asia in the end of the 90s but in the middle of the 90s is that period in the early 90s where europe being caught up in currency crisis after currency crisis indeed going back into the 80s was finished talking politics is brought to you in partnership with the london review of books a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. That's one of the questions about the euro. Did it actually come about because what we can now see with hindsight were relatively unusual and benign and temporary conditions were mistaken as a signal of the way that the world was going? This is a broader question about the 1990s. It doesn't just relate to finance and economics it relates to geopolitics as well but it was a propitious time to do this kind of thing it now looks with hindsight so it was also an unusual time yeah i don't think the early 90s itself were actually benign in this respect but from about 1995 onwards then it becomes relatively benign anyway not in all parts of the world but and then at that extent you could say all the way to 2000 not 2008 i'd say until the summer of 2007 when the financial crisis began and that's a long time that that's is, 12 that is years. i mean it, it, i think it would be wrong though to say that there weren't significant issues within monetary union you know in that time so for instance you can see italy's problems are evident by 2004 2005 i mean berlusconi at one point basically says the euro is a disaster it screwed everybody and you can see that Germany itself has significant issues in the early years. I mean, Germany ends up with 4 million people unemployed in around the sort of turn of the, the century mark. What you don't have is the existential crisis that's going to come for the euro once we get to 2009 and the beginning of the Greek crisis. So before we get there, again, there's a conventional story that the euro was in the minds of some people, including some of its creators, a step on the road to a fuller union, and it would force certain kinds of convergence, which were preconditions of a wider political union. So in that period, what did converge and what didn't? Where did the euro actually force alignments? And what were the things that were left fundamentally misaligned or unaligned? Well, the, the thing that happened actually before the euro itself even got going, which happened from some point in, again, I would say ninety. was the convergence of interest rates and that has been even for the states that had the most problems with the euro since so Italy, Greece that has been the one clear advantage to it I still think that there's an international context to that outside Europe in the sense that they're generally being lower interest rates from the mid-90s than they were in the 70s and 80s um, or indeed the early 90s but you can see that for you know a considerable amount of time, there was investors treated lending to Germany and lending to Greece as almost identical to each other. Not entirely quite, but really nearly identical. And one of the things then you can see the crisis is, is blowing that alignment apart. I think what you also see is some alignment in inflation. It's not that there are no inflation differentials between the Eurozone members, but there's nothing like the inflation differentials between Germany and other European community states that there are in the 70s and the 80s. What you don't get 
is any fiscal convergence in that you still have states that run significantly higher deficits than others. Now, the interesting thing there is, is for a while, one of those states is actually Germany itself, because in the last years of the, the Social Democratic government before the Grand Coalition of 2005, Germany was three years in a row breaking the rules that it had insisted upon itself on the Stability and, and Growth Pact and that had discarded things. That is a kind of interesting part of the story as well. If we say that monetary union happened on German terms, then German terms kind of change for a while during that period of that social democratic-led government from 98, I think it was. I was looking at the Eurobarometer measures of public opinion, and one of the questions that's always asked is public attitudes to the euro. There was a lot of scepticism early on. It wasn't by any means a universally popular project, and in some places more than others, there was a lot of doubt. So we've been through the great existential crisis. One of the striking features is that if you map it out over time, it just steadily ticks up. Of course, there are, there are dips. So in Greece, confidence in the euro goes rapidly down. A few years ago, though, it's rising again quite fast now. In places like Ireland, it's at historic highs, people's attachment to the euro. In Italy, it's still very high, higher than it used to be. It's an interesting story in a way that when it was in its early heyday, in the benign conditions, people were pretty doubtful. They seem more attached to it now. Is it because it's been tested? Is it because it's so entrenched? Is it because people know that life outside the euro doesn't bear thinking about once you're in it? I mean, I think that the fear does have a great deal to do with it because what happened over time in a monetary union is that you have so much debt that is denominated in the currency that the consequences of leaving and going back to your national currency are very, very hard to contemplate. So if it were to end, it is going to end through sort of some implosion rather than states voluntarily seceding. I think that that will probably be back tested again soon, or relatively soon anyway, when the Eurozone economy, like other economies, go back into recession. And it's it's pretty clear now, particularly given what Draghi said after the last um, ECB meeting, that when that recession comes, that the Eurozone will begin with negative interest rates. And that is going to be extremely testing for the Eurozone, how the consequences of that play out. And I think that the other way of, of, of looking at it is to say that actually the Germans have been partially defeated since Draghi became president of the European Central Bank. Because if you'd said to those guys at the Bundesbank who were putting interest rates up, I think it was the, the day after or the day after that, the, the Maastricht summit, that the European Central Bank would, however many years, I think we are, six years after the last recession ended in the Eurozone, have negative interest rates and have huge amounts of assets on the ECB's balance sheet, having pursued a quantitative easing programme for three years, as it did between 2015 and 2018, they'd have been horrified. And if you'd said, and this would have been presided over by an Italian, yeah. they would have been both horrified and like, oh, right, that's what's going on. <laughs> yeah. Just, I mean, they couldn't have... A, they couldn't have conceived that Italy would be in monetary union. I mean, one of the reasons why that the budget deficit criterion for qualifying was set at 3% because that was considered a level that the Italians could never meet. So you know, the French have been not partially vindicated. It seems a strange way of, of looking at it because there's still obviously very considerable discontent amongst the French political class about the way in which that monetary union works, as we see from the things that Macron says. But it is not the beast, if you like, that was imagined 
safely constrained by the Germans in in the early 90s. So in that sense, the less German it became under Draghi, the easier it is for other countries to find it more acceptable. As I say, I still don't think this question about how different it can be from what that German model is without politically fracturing has been entirely put politically to the test. The place where there seems to be the greatest scepticism about the euro now is in Eastern Europe. That's where, especially in public opinion surveys, there's very, very little confidence in it. As Europe fractures, one way it potentially fractures is Italy becomes part of this more Eastern-oriented, and again, sometimes called populist alliance, but that includes places like Poland and Hungary. If originally this was about France and Germany, there is at least the possibility now that a new division is opening up and the euro could be part of the battleground there. Italy is pulled east, not west. I think that there's a general east-west element to the internal difficulties that the European Union has at the moment and that obviously also has implications for the EU's external relations, not least with Russia, where there's clear disagreement between the eastern European member states and to some extent France and Germany. And I think that if you are sitting in Eastern Europe and you looked at what happened, particularly actually in Hungary during the financial crisis where there had been quite a lot of private debt basically run up in in euros and the European Central Bank basically wasn't interested in engaging with Hungary's financial difficulties in any way and Hungary ended up going to the IMF for a loan. I think it's going to be quite difficult to imagine any situation in the foreseeable future where Hungary and Poland are going to be joining the the euro. And I, I do think, that, there, particularly in Hungary's case, that distrust was built up by what happened to Hungary during the financial crisis. And that does pose a problem for the European Union as a whole because it is now clearly going to continue to be a multi-currency union, even with if and when Britain leaves the European Union. Union. And that in some sense means that Cole's vision of it as a symbol of a united Europe can't actually be realised. Now, the position of Italy in this is is complicated, obviously, because on the one hand, it was a founder member of the European you know, economic community, the one government back in 87, who initially supported the French government with the Italians. It was a bit of a mystery in some sense why that they thought that Italy could live under a monetary union. But there was a sort of a French-Italian axis against what they saw as German monetary hegemony within the um, community. And that Italy has not been able to maintain an alliance with France over monetary union questions in recent years, particularly really under Macron's presidency. You can see Hollande made some attempt to ally with the Southern European governments when he came into power in 2012, but not 20 effect. So where does that leave Italy? I mean, Italy looks like it's got people in the government who are kind of like flirting with alternative ideas, but they've clearly got no strategy about how to realise them or how to take Italy out of the euro. So I still think that that's quite difficult for Italy to form alliances with Poland and Hungary in particular. The impossible question to finish there is a recession coming. There's always a recession coming at some point. There is going to be more pressure on this system. Italy is one potential flashpoint. Do you have a sense of what the others might be or where the ultimate flashpoint might be? Obviously, it was Greece a few years ago. It's unlikely to be Greece again. 
I think the flashpoint is Germany because I think that there is going to be very considerable pressure when that recession comes to go back to quantitative easing. And Draghi was able to do that, I think, make that move under a quite specific set of circumstances, including that there were certain uses to Germany, well, particularly the German finance minister at the time, Wolfgang Schorbel, even though it was very critical of QE, it did actually allow him to engage in the att- his attempt to expel Greece from the euro because it provided a means of stopping contagion from Greece to, to the other parts of southern Europe. But I think that it was a pretty close thing or that Draghi just about managed to secure tacit German consent to that move to QE. Whether his successor will be able to do so, I think is a is a whole other question. And sure. German politics is not what it was in January 2015. That was going to be my last, which is, and a green government in Germany? That changes it too. I mean, or a green coalition government. Well, I think that what's interesting about the German domestic politics of this is, is that there isn't much of it. So the social democratic finance minister has been no different than Schorbel in the positions that he's taken. Now, on the one hand, you might expect the Greens to back away from the traditional German position, but they haven't really engaged that much on this kind of macroeconomic question. And given it's quite hard to see how the Greens would be governed without a coalition partner in present German politics, I wouldn't really expect there to be that much difference. As always, we've got suggestions for further reading with our show notes. Helen Thompson now has a fortnightly column in the New Statesman. We will tweet the link to that at tppodcast underscore. It is essential reading. The next guide is how to be a civil servant. Is it really like Yes Minister? My name's David Runciman and we've been talking politics. Politics.